Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Proper salutations to anyone who's listening on the Beth Am podcast, whatever time of day you happen to be doing so. We're at the seventh Aliyah of Parshat Shmot, if my notes are correct, uh, which means that we are... Um, you know, be, be going to be closing the parsha relatively soon. It's taken us a long parsha, long time to go through. Uh, but the seventh aliyah is not a short aliyah; it's like twenty-two verses or something. And we have finished the stretch at the end of the fourth chapter, which we spent weeks on in and of itself, where Rashi goes silent. But we found about one commentator per verse just to expand the story. Um, but Rashi wakes up a bit. Um, as the seventh Aliyah begins, it's also the beginning of the chapter of Exodus, according to the counting um, by the uh, uh, by the, the, the non-Jewish counting of the books of the Torah. So, um, as is our wont, I'll read the previous verse to give us some momentum, and then I'll ask someone to read the first verse of chapter five. So, where did we leave off? Chapter thirty-one, sorry, verse thirty-one of chapter four. Vaya amen ha'am, the people amened. Right. Excuse me, Rabbi. Yeah. We actually left off. We read the first verse of chapter five. We did. We hadn't. Did we do the Rashi? We didn't do the Rashi's though. No, no, no. We, we just read the verse and we had no comments. And I'm sure there's lots of comments. Got it. Okay. Um, so let me quickly go through these two verses just to get us there. At the end of the fifth chapter, the people amained. Uh, we talked about how the word believe is the word that Amen is translated into, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the word meant then. Um, but they, they had some trust in what uh, Moshe was saying to them. By Yishmu, they hearkened, Kifa Kadronai B'nei Israel. They took, they, they took heed of the fact that God had remembered them. And that God had seen their misery. By Ikdu, they, they bowed and they prostrated themselves. And we talked about how that was maybe two different types of physical bowing. And now our verse Biachar, after. Ba'u Moshe Biaron, Moses and Aaron came. Moses and Aaron came. Bayomru el Paro. Finally, they're in front of Pharaoh. They said to Pharaoh, Ko Amar Adonai Elohei Yisrael. This is what the God, who is the God of Israel, has said. Shalach et ami. Release, send my people. Bayachoguli Bamidbar. They'll make a circle to me in the desert. Uh, that's only somewhat facetious. The word chag, as we discussed, thank you for reminding me, this is the same as the word hajj in Arabic. It means to circumambulate, to perambulate something in the center, which is what the Muslims do at the hajj, which is what we do in in hakafot, which is what we do when we take the Torah out. A chag is a a circular festival that has just turned into uh, a standard word in Hebrew for a festival or a holiday. Okay. Uh, so that's where we are. Rashi does have something to say on this verse, but let's just pause to see if anybody had any other any lingering questions or reactions to the verse before we go to the Rashi. Uh, Joel and Elon. I just wanted to point out that earlier on it says, Vayelech Moshe Aharon, singular, which is almost like Moshe went and Aaron went with him, but here it's plural. Now they're a team. Yeah, so where, where's the Vayelech? Oh, yes, the beginning of verse 29. Yeah. Right. In verse 29, it was Vayelech Moshe Aaron, singular verb for Moshe and Aaron, and then Vayasfu. At some point, when they did the gathering, they were doing it together. And here, all the verbs are, are plural. Yeah. What to make it, I'm not sure. 
Um, but you're right to point it out. Sometimes Moses and Aaron as a duo get a singular verb and sometimes they get a plural verb. Elon? So actually, I've been thinking about this for two weeks because it, it was it was troubling when I first read it, which is this is kind of God as narcissist. And, and the reason I say that is it doesn't say to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can be free. Let the, let my people go because uh, their life uh, in slavery under your under your rule has been terrible. Um, no, it says send out my people that they may celebrate for me in the wilderness. Seems like well, that may be the worst of all reasons. Like that's great for God, but what does that have to do with the people? And what's Pharaoh going to get out of the deal? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of commentary on that, which that, that theme um, continues through the, this this whole extended scene. Uh, some some read it as a strategy that if you say to a slave owner, release my slaves from your bondage and they're going to live a free life, the slave owner will say no. But if you say, can we just get a short vacation, come do a yantif, and then they'll come back to Egypt and continue working, then that might be more, the slave owner might be more likely to release them. Right. So that some people read it as a, as a tactic. In fact, in one of the other scenes that we'll get to, that's actually mentioned specifically, that they're going to go and come back. When the ne- when the notion is never that they're going to come back, um, I think your your comment is also a cousin to the comment of why internal to the logic of the Torah, like forget about like our logic, but internal to the logic of the Torah, why it would be a stimulus to Pharaoh to know that it was the God of Israel that's made this request, right? Because as we're going to see the next verse, the most obvious response of any Egyptian king would be to say. Who's that? Like, like, like you, you're not telling me that you heard that my gods told me to let you go. You heard that your fake God is telling you to let me, telling me to let you go. Why should that, why should that be any authority to me? So um, there, there's the re- rationale given that they, that they honor me. And then also the source of the authority is a source that we imagine that the Pharaoh, again, internal to the logic of the story would have no reason to pay any attention to. Right? That's not particularly like he doesn't start with the magic trick. He doesn't start with the um, with the indication that the God is capable of things. He just starts with the oh, you know, our God, God said, please let us go. Why that? Why there's anyone that would think inside that moment of the story that would change Pharaoh uh, is challenging for me. Uh, Larry, Diane. So I also agree with Elon, and I also. When I take off on the last point that you made, he doesn't do the magic trick. He doesn't do anything God has told him. He, in fact, just approaches the Pharaoh and says, God said this. So this is from Alter, Robert Alter, who says, um, the abruptness of Moses and Aaron's address to the king of Egypt is noteworthy. They use none of the deferential forms of speech, none of the third person bowing and scraping which are conventional in, Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew for addressing a monarch. Instead, they immediately announce, thus said the Lord, and proceed to the text of the message, which begins with an imperative verb without po- polite particle of entreaty. William H.C. Prop observes that in doing this, Moses is not following God's orders. He was to have spoken together with the elders who appeared to be absent. He was to have performed his two portents. He was to have threatened Pharaoh's firstborn in, the na- in God's name. Uh, he goes on, and this next one is mainly uh, a reference to the Rashi, which I won't say. So he doesn't do anything. And the question here 
question here is, did Moses do this on his own? Because God never told him, take do it in stages by having, asking the Pharaoh to let the people out. Was this Moses' doing? Is he the one that's the agent here? Or is he still following the instruction of, of God? Yeah. Great question. You can add to that the ways in which Moshe is not yet, at least, following the very clear instruction that God seems to give him. That, uh, where is it? Um, uh, 22 and 23. Right. That um, for the scene with the um, um, with the Chatan Damim, the last set of instructions that God gives to Moshe is that you should not only perform those signs and wonders, but you should directly threaten him. Look back at verse 22. You should say to Pharaoh, Ko Amar Adonai. This is what God said. This is my people, my firstborn, not yours. Va'omar Alecha. He's going to say back to you, Shalachet b'ni Sorry, and and I say to you, Shalachet b'ni v'ayavdeni. Send my people, and they will serve me. Vatzima ein l'shacho, and he, Pharaoh, will refuse. Hinei anochi horeg et bincha b'chorecha. That's when you threaten him with killing his son. Now you could say back to that. Well. In our scene, Pharaoh hasn't refused yet, right? So maybe this is the two-stager. Like the first stage is the request, and then God predicts that Pharaoh is going to refuse, and then the response to that refusal is the threat. Um, but in this initial encounter, it's just the request without any of the indications that Moshe is speaking with or through uh, an authoritative God. Uh, Joanna? Um so it's interesting here that the word is viachogu libamidbar because often it's via avduni. And when it's via avduni, then the, the contrast is, you know, right there in your face. It, the idea is that we are not avadim to any human. We serve our God. Um, and I think also, like, we're leading into the Makot, and here, you know, Paro clearly is about to say, you know, who is this God? But I think it's a setup for the Makot, because we get to a point after Barad, where Paro remarkably says, Chatati hapa'am. So I think in the trajectory of the story, the language here is um, quite telling and quite, um, you know, quite a play on words that continues to develop throughout the story. And so what then would you say, Joanna, as to the significance or the play in using Vayachogu and not Vayavduni here? I think perhaps it's, I, I don't really know. I think perhaps maybe because Chag is a, because it's interesting. What did Hashem say in Kafkemo to say? Ha, Hashem said, you're going to go to him and say, Shlachet b'ni v'yavdeni, right? And so Moshe changes the word here, which is, as you're pointing out, quite fascinating to contemplate. I'm wondering if perhaps because a Chag is something Paro could relate to, the Mitzrim had Chagim for their gods, and perhaps Moshe was hoping that Paro would relate to this idea of having a Chag for your god. Linking your comment to Ilan's question, again, in, 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 a, in, a, in, in, a, in a part of a conversation that's unresolvable, we can never get to the end of this, you know, maybe 
asking for them to leave for a Chag is less threatening than asking them to leave to serve a different master, right? So Vayavduni, as you said, is, is, is evocative and poignant because the, the idea is, Pharaoh, you think they are Avadim to you, but they're actually Avadim to me, to God. And maybe the, the, the request for a Chagiga is less threatening to his sense of his own authority. So, so even though it's not the language that God said for Moshe to say, uh, you know, maybe as, as you say in football, Moshe calls an audible and decided at the line of scrimmage that he was going to do a, do a different play. It wasn't particularly effective, um, but maybe it's, it's, it's less of an attack on Pharaoh to say, no, we're just coming out for a celebration, not for them to switch masters. Norm, Rachel, I don't know if Rachel's there. I see Norm. Rachel had to leave because she needs to take the Afghan boy to get immunized and then uh, take the family to a food bank out yeah. in Canoga Park. Okay. Um, a worthy reason. Yes. So I think it's pretty clear to me, Moshe is not disobeying God or disregarding God's views or wishes, but what he should say, he may be um, paraphrasing instead of translating, but we know that when Moshe does something wrong, he sooner or later gets punished, and this is never given to us as a reason for his being punished. Um, so I think he's acting appropriately, and I think that Pharaoh, you know, this is something Pharaoh can understand, as a, a few of you have suggested. He can understand the idea of, of a god who needs or wants to be worshipped at a festival, Um the idea of freedom for slaves is something that I don't think he can even imagine um, that they're slaves and they aren't going to be able to run a society on their own. And I think that's yeah. as far as he would consider it. Yeah. Great. Great comment, Norm. Sue. I was just thinking about how, you know, the way, just the way human experience and, and, and the, the way things go. I mean, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for me to follow directions. It's silly, but everything is filtered through human experience. So that was such a big moment. I, I just look at it in, in that human way. It, it was such a big moment at the burning bush and God told him a lot and, and Moshe filtered it and went, okay, this is, this is what I heard. And, and so now I have to go do it. And it wasn't like he turned around and did it right then. Mm. It got filtered like everything else gets filtered. Mm. It, mm. it, um, it, it really reminds me, Rabbi, I don't know if you remember this, but when early, when you had first come, my, my youngest daughter was in fifth grade at the religious school and they do a celebration. They do like a, um, they do a whole like uh, life cycles thing. And so she got married to Barry Gibbons <laughs> and you married them. <laughs> they were, you know, 11 or whatever they were. <laughs> and you, you absolutely instructed me to, you know, recite the blessing, but don't say Adonai. Mm. And so I was like, okay, of course, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to do this wrong. And I p- proceeded to completely botch that. And of course, Adonai, because it just fell out of my mouth that way. And um, I thought there's just a human filter ha- that, that comes into play. So anyway. I'm glad you reminded me of that, because I think that that means that we need to get them a divorce, because I think that that means that their marriage was formalized without our intention. You, you did it right. It was my own part. 
I do remember that. That was, those were those were sweet ceremonies uh-huh. uh, as we as we uh, brought the seventh. I think it was seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. I forgot in, into uh, the Jewish life life they, experience. By the way, they do occasionally when they greet each other, call each other husband and wife. <laughs> That's great. They're in their twenties. <laughs> uh, Tova, speaking of marriages. I find that the way I'm reacting to this is, I guess I'd say psychologically, and and that means I'm taking a step back and kind of allowing the story to uh, speak in its own terms. And in its own terms, this is Moshe returning to Egypt and facing an individual that he has had some kind of connection to growing up, you know, in the terms of the story, if we accept that in, in its totality. And I, I, somehow this reads to me like the almost, um, there, there's a bluntness to it that feels uncomfortable, mm-hmm. if you will, that um, if he's facing someone, the Pharaoh now, that we don't know exactly, may have been raised as a half-brother, you know, with him or that kind of, and, and, and having to face that authority. And so it comes out sort of very bluntly and um, without, I, I've, I've glanced ahead and the next time they make the request again, it's done in a very different way. And therefore this one comes across with a, Something of an, I don't know, an awkwardness, a defensiveness, something that is different in this, as if he is conflicted in that moment. Uh, he, Moshe, it, he, Moshe, conflicted in that moment when he's back in this context mm. that he's had a connection to. Mm. But again, as I said, kind of, you have to put yourself wholly into the story as we've read it. But Right. I mean, um, one of the things we haven't done in a long time at the shul because of COVID and other reasons, we haven't done a bibliodrama in the middle of a service. And I'm right. thinking about what happens, like the organic midrash that takes place when, like if, if we were to stop this Rashi class and I would do a Zoom bibliodrama, right? And I would say to you, Tova, you are Moshe, right? And you're standing in front of Pharaoh and this is the first opportunity and you've just had that intense experience by the burning bush and, and whatever happened with you and Sipora and your son and you're about to are say for the first time the words you've been practicing, what's going through your mind right now we might get a window into into the psychology of what that leader, whom we know does not think highly of his own speech uh, abilities, uh, might be might be thinking as he's fumbling for the right words this first time. Right, Aaron Aaron is there, but it's on him. So there, there's a it, it is psychologically pregnant. I suppose every moment of reality is, but this one, you know, you know, some some moments are more equal than others, um, and this one is is, is a big one. Um, what Rashi picks up on is kind of a subset of, of, of what was said before, but I think it's something that, that Larry hinted at. Um, so, uh, Larry, do you want the kavod of reading the Rashi? Thank you. Yes. All right. And if you're on, if you're in it, in the, um, the Torah Chaim, uh, Chumash, it's on page Nun Dalet, the Rashi, the verse goes over two pages, but the Rashi appears um, on the first of the two pages. Okay. Vachar ba'u Moshe v'aharon v'gomit. Chuli. Sorry. Um, um, okay. Aval, 
הזקנים נשמטו אחד-אחד מאחר משה ואהרון. But the elders, okay, נשמטו, I don't know what it literally means, but I know that the translation is that they slipped away. Correct. Lishmot, shin mem tet, can mean to hold back, to not go forward. They kind of, as you said, slipped away. They sloughed off one by one. Shmita. Correct. Right. Shmita. Very good. Shmita is a, it's a holding back from, I don't know, I don't know how to link Shmita to this verb, but it's a holding back from, from pushing forward into something that you otherwise would. So it's the, the, the holding back part of Shemitah, which does not necessarily have an agricultural overtone, is the same as what they're doing. They, they, they held back rather than went forward. And that's what we're supposed to do vis-a-vis the land, is to hold back from tilling and soil and, and planting and things like that. Exactly right. Same verb. Okay. So they, 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 they slipped away one by one. Um, from behind uh, Moses and Aaron, Ad Shenishmatu Kulam Kodem Shegiu Le Palitin. So they they um, until they had slipped all of them. They had, they had all they all disappeared, I guess, before they they arrived at the palace. So right. none of them came to the palace of the um, of of the Pharaoh. Okay, pause one second. Just want to show you that word, Jastro. Paltin or palatin, right? You see very easily what the etymology is, like a, a, a pal- something that is palatial, right? In English, it turns into palace, but it's from a Greek root that um, that uh, that be- that becomes part of rabbinic Hebrew. So, palace or la- a large regal structure. Okay, go ahead. Lefi she yaru lelechet. According that they were do do lefi as because uh, because uh, because they feared to go right and why might they have feared to go? <laughs> well, I mean, I would assume that they didn't think they're going to be killed. Why wouldn't Pharaoh just smudge them all? Right, the and, of it. and the reason why we'll get to Rashi's solution and uh, or his his second part of second. And the reason why Rashi is sensitive to this, and I think I think this you, Larry, hinted this before. If you look back, hold on. Um, um, go back in your um, in your Chumashim to chapter three, verse eighteen. So, um, in the earlier part of the burning bush scene. Right, we there were several different interactions between Moshe and God about what's to happen when he gets to Egypt. In chapter three, verse eighteen, which I assume everyone has, because you have Shmot, you have that. Vishamula kolecha, they, the Israelites, will listen to your voice. Uvata, and you, Moses, are going to go. Who? Ata, you. Vezikne Yisrael, and all the elders of Israel. El Melech Mitzrayim to the king of Egypt. And you should all say to them, that the God of the Hebrews has appeared to us. And now let's go three days into the desert. 
Uh, and here, it's not Nachoga, it's not Vayabdu, it's V'nizbechal Adonai Eloheinu. We're going to offer sacrifices to Adonai our God. So Rashi reads our verse, right? And he says, okay, Moses is there, great. Aaron is there, great. Where did all the elders go, right? If we're trying to imagine that Moshe is essentially trying to um, do this task as God asked him to do, right? Not only might we quibble with the choice of words and he, he uses and, and his not yet bringing forward these, um, these miracles, but where are the zakini? Rashi knows the verse back in, in verse 18, which we may have forgotten about, that the Zikanian was supposed to be there. So Rashi has to come up through Shemot Rabbah and answer as to where they were. They were invited. They were supposed to come. And kind of like the cowardly lion in front of the, um, of the wizard, one by one, they said, this is not for us. Now, as you can understand rabbinic storytelling and theology, that is not going to go unnoticed. And that is not going to go unmarked. So keep reading, and then we'll get to Rick's comment. Okay. Uvisinai nifralahem. So at Sinai, um, they will they they will pay for that. Right. They, they, it basically it was collected from them, or it was it was paid on their behalf, something like that, because it's a passive verb. Um, and now there's a quote here from Shmot um, Kaf Dalid. Vinigash Moshe Levado El Hashem Vehem Lo Yagishu. And the Vinigash, give me a translation there. Moses alone shall come. Um, okay. Um, to to his to his to the side of of God, and they won't approach, um, and they won't approach. Right. So this is from Parshat Mishpatim, um, after the Ten Commandments. But there's in the realm of Ein Mukdam and Muhar, there are storylines in uh, Mishpatim where it's hard to tell exactly if it's before or after Moshe goes up the first time. And if you go back to one verse, El Moshe Amar. And to, Mo- and to Moses, God said, go up to God, you and Aaron, and and the Shivim, those elders. And the elders are saying to themselves, great, we're, we're still involved. We're invited into the first class lounge up at the top of Mount Sinai. And you should uh, bow down from a distance. And what happened next? But no, only Moshe went. They did not approach. And the people did not go with him. So the way Rashi is reading this verse is that not, it's not that in this verse they didn't want to, it's that they were prevented. And it was actually a teasing. In verse one, God says, yeah, you're going to come up with. And by verse two, uh-uh, I remember how frightened you were when I sent you on your first task to go speak to Pharaoh. And that is not going to be rewarded. The problem with this as a proof text, if we want to do a Rashi and a Rashi, is that if you look at these two verses in um, in succession, it seems that both the elders and Aaron are not involved in the coming close to God in verse 2, which according to the internal logic of the Midrash would suggest that Aaron was also being punished for something. And yet in our verse, Aaron is there, right? Uh, and not the Zikanian. Um So it's, it's not a perfect proof text, but... Um, 
but it's pretty good. So then just finish off by reading those last two words. Uh, Larry? Um, he, um, he, he, he told them, he, I don't know, I'm not sure what, what the translation is. He, he, he returned them, he turned them around, hechazir otam, oh. backwards. Basically, they, they, not, not in our verse, in this scene, but in the verse that we were just looking at, they were starting to uh, head towards God's inner sanctum as they were invited to in verse one. And God said, no, you guys turn around, you're going back to where you came from. You don't, you don't rank and the reason you don't rank is because you left Moshe and Aaron without their wingmen in this very important scene. Okay, uh, let's see what's what's percolating out there. Uh, before I unmute, Larry, Diane, anything while you're at the mic? No. Okay, Rick. Uh, hi, <clears throat> two things. Um, <clears throat> the elders do get that catered meal on the side of the mountain there where they're eating with the angels um, that nobody ever talks about, but uh, they have this one one sentence uh, meal there on the side. But um, I, I like that Rashi played on the word achar. I'm, I'm thinking that he did. Uh, he could have used any words, but when he goes, me'achar Moshe ve'aharon, the first word in the sentence was ve'achar. Oh. So I think um, I, I, I just like the alliteration there. Yeah, and then also at the end, hechziram la'achorehem. Right, so sometimes a word is just a word, and sometimes Rashi is being lyrical while he's uh, resolving problems in a verse. I think that's all. Thanks, Rick. Uh, Tova. Uh, it, yeah, it just strikes me that uh, this casts an interesting light on what seems to be a that Moshe does not uh, thereafter seemingly rely on the Zikne uh, uh, because we have eventually this scene where Yitro has to remind him that he can't do it by himself. He needs to bring in and, and you could almost trace it back to they failed me here. They, mm. they, were not, they did not have my back and deliberately or not that seems to have connect to that he uh, has not uh, does not turn to them in the early days of his leadership. Very nice. Good. Joanna, and then I'm going to look at, we're going to look at one Ibn Ezra together. So um, with regards to, you know, the comment about the Midrash maybe doesn't quite work because where's Aharon? I tend to think that Aharon is still present and in the scene. And the hint to me to that is jumping ahead a little bit to verse Dalid where um, Paro says to them, Lama Moshe Aharon Tafriu. So why would Paro have brought up Aharon if Aharon wasn't somehow present and involved? So to me, that seems to allude to the fact that Aharon is still engaged and involved, whereas the Zikini. Very good. Very good. Um, I want to share one. Uh, I'm just trying to pull up online because not everyone has our it's, uh, humash. Um, one Ibn Ezra comment, and it goes to something that one of you uh, picked up on as well, but I remember who it was. So first of all, that word achar is weird. Asad Gaon just turns it from achar into acharkein, because achar usually on its own does not mean afterwards. It's acharei hadvarim ha'ela, or v'acharkach. So the v'achar is hanging out as a, as a weird word, 
maybe it was, uh, who, who knows? Who knows how, why it was just reserved as Viachar? But we also were asking the question, maybe I think Elon brought this up, like, is, is Moshe going a little bit rogue here? Because the order, um, but there's certain, there seem to be some things missing. Look at Ibn Ezra says, what's the Achar mean? If there's an after in the verse, then it's a specific after. It's not just the next thing that happened. It's after something specific. Achar, Sha'asa, Aharon, Etaotot, Ba'ushnehem El Paro, right? After they, you know, this could either mean after Aaron practiced the signs or after Aaron did the signs and the wonders to get into the palace. That's when they finally have their um, initial standing in front of, uh, in front of uh, Pharaoh. So Ibn Ezra wants us to think that, that even though we're going to see a scene coming up where more of those signs and wonders are done, that don't think that that step was skipped. That's what the Achar means. After what? After they practiced those, uh, those tricks and then were able to use them as a way of getting into the palace, right? Because you could ask us a question, how do they even claim an audience with Pharaoh, right? Or Ibn Ezra through the Ototin team. Okay, uh, good. Anything else before we go to verse two? All right, who have we not heard from today? Alan, do you want to read verse two? And you're probably going to get to verse three because Rashi's quiet on verse two, and that's our um, okay. our policy. Okay. Vayomer paro mi mi Adonai asher eshma asher eshma bekolo lishlach et Yisrael. Lo yadati et Adonai v'gam Yisrael lo ashaleach. Okay, um, and uh, and Alan, yeah. right? sure. Go ahead. Okay, and um, so and uh, and Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, "Who is this God that uh, that I hear?" Uh, that 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 I should that, that I that I should listen to uh, uh, his voice uh, to send it, it, to send out Israel to send out the, the Israel as you okay lo um, yadati I am I do not know I do not know God and and uh, and Israel and I'm not going to send them out yeah that's so. Uh, Pharaoh's first response is exactly what you'd expect. Who? What? Why? Right? It's, 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 in fact, in fact, it's such a beautifully scripted narrative because we know it's coming and it's, and it, and it still packs a punch when Pharaoh responds. Like, who, who do you think you are, Moshe? And why should your invoking your God have any impact on what I should do with my life and my slaves? Um, I want you to look at Uncleus a second. Um, because he uses some interesting language, uh, language choices. So, uh, Amar Paro, that's simple, Pharaoh said, Shemad um, Adonai, the name of God, La Itkaleli, has not been revealed to me. That's not a word for word translation of Mi Adonai Asher Ashmabakolo, who is this God that I should listen to him, but that the name of God has not been revealed to me, such that I would accept his words. So why Uncleus went there, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting choice. L'shalach hayat Yisrael, to send Israel. La itkaleli, again, it has not been revealed to me. Shema Adonai, the name of God. So the, the two times um, 
there's a reference in the verse to a not knowing. One of them is a me Adonai who is God, and the second is Lo Yadati. Uh, I, I don't I don't know this God. Uncleish translates it into a lack of revelation. La itkeleli shmadarnai. The name of God has not been revealed to me, but therefore, ba'af, yat Yisrael lo ashaleah. At the people of Israel, I will not uh, send forth. This is not for a lack of Aramaic words to have rendered it a direct translation had he wanted to. It's some interesting editorial choice that uh, made him go that way. Uh, I, don't, I don't know nearly enough about those to- the types of choices that Uncleus makes to give an explanation as to why. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, Tova. Uh, one of the things I find sort of fascinating with the response is that, uh, among other things, the role that Pharaoh played was essentially as high priest of all of the gods of Egypt and invoking them almost on a daily, certainly on a weekly basis as part of maintaining ongoing creation. That's the essential function of the Pharaoh was maintaining the uh, order that rose out of chaos, maintaining that and doing in, in doing that by invoking and perpetuating all of the cults of the gods who he did know, who had been revealed to him. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because it's almost like there's a hint here of there would be a possibility, did I know this God and had he been revealed to me, that I would have some kind of a necessary relation because Egyptians did bring in other gods uh, you know, the, some of the um, Semitic gods actually that were associated with the Sinai were semi-adopted by the Egyptians. Uh, so it, it seems to be almost not so much that it wouldn't be possible I might recognize this god, but I haven't. This, he hasn't been revealed to me. Uh, wow. so, That's really interesting. That, yeah. That, that, um, yeah. It, so whenever you bring in some of that that that, kind of, that history into the our conversations. Um, it adds a lot. The question is wh- how much of what you slash therefore we know about yeah. how Egyptians and, and Egyptian kings thought of themselves was was known by Uncle as such that he was going to translate the verse in that way. But maybe Uncle by his at that era it would still have been pre- because even when the Greeks and Romans came in, they tended to adopt Egyptian. I mean, the Ptolemies became Egyptianized, for example. Yeah. You know, so um, it's it is not at all impossible that they would understand that that role of the pharaoh. Yeah. But. Thank you for that, Tova. Yeah. Uh, Larry, Diane. Well, less learnedly, I have a similar comment of less learnedly than Tova, but I've often commented on the the the, the terrible lack of of language that we have in English when we talk about God. Um, and even in Hebrew here, we, we would have said Adonai, but I think here the Orthodox, when they're speaking English, have it over us when they use the word Hashem, because it would be the name of God even. It wouldn't even be Hashem. It'd be the pronunciation of the yod vav Hey. And in everything that I think I know about the way in which ancients viewed deities, they, they did not, the, the, if you said you had a God, they never said, no, he's not God. Is that's fine. That's your God. Why do I have to do anything? I, he has nothing to do with me. You have a father. I have a father. I don't listen to your father. So, um, uh, and remember, there's lots of characters in the in the Torah and the Tanakh who who knew of and respected Yudhei Vavhei, um, even um, uh, Balaam. 
knew, knew God, and Yitro knew God, and lots of others. So here we have both that Pharaoh didn't know him, never heard of this guy, which is a little bit surprising, but, but also saying, okay, but so what? I'm not going to listen to this guy. Right. Why should I? I? I can't but think about the great scene between Gene Wilder, and I forgot the name of the actor, and the Frisco kid, whether in the Native American tent, and they're talking about, you know, you know, Gene Wilder says, he's your God too. And the, the chief says, like, we, we have enough problem with, the, with our own gods. We don't, we don't need your God. You keep your God out of this. And it's, it's a wonderful, sticky exchange that ends up saying a lot about what we believe about our God versus their God. Um, so that's a very interesting comment, uh, right? Uh, it, it's possible that the renown of another people's gods would have reached the palace, but the fact that that Pharaoh may have heard of yud heh vav does not mean that Pharaoh is going to heed yud heh vav because Pharaoh thinks that Pharaoh is the god of all gods. Great. Uh, Renee and then Joanna? Everett Fox has an interesting footnote to this verse that, that says, the attitude recalls an earlier obstacle to the liberation process. Who am I of Moshe? I don't know yud vav Colloquially, I care not a whit for yud vav to Pharaoh's pointed challenge, the entire narrative that follows is an answer. Yeah, the first thing that Arafax says is really fascinating, that that Pharaoh's response to Moshe, mi Adonai, is evocative of Moshe's response to God, mi ani, who, 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 who am I such that I should uh, take on this task, and Pharaoh, and, which is a humble mi ani, mm-hmm. and Pharaoh is a mi Adonai, which is the opposite of humble. Right? Who is this God compared to me? Well done, Everett. Good. Thank you, Renee. Joanna. Larry and Larry's comment is very interesting to me in light of the fact that just recently I've been reading some stuff about Israelites and, and biblical, um, you know, who we were in the Bible as opposed to who we are today that talks about um, our belief in God and makes the distinction between monogamy and monolatry. And that is the belief in solely one God versus the belief in, okay, I have my God and I have the God I pray to, but it doesn't negate the fact that there might be some other gods out there. Yes. And so that contrast is very striking, both to think about that in terms of the meat stream, but also in terms of B'nai Israel. We're going to get to the sea. And what's the most famous line proclaimed at the sea? Micha mocha ba'elim. Yes. Who is like you, our God, among all the other ones? Yes. And even in there's el- elsewhere, right? The the Lota of Dame, don't worship them. In order for me to command you not to worship them, there's some acknowledgement that there's a them, or at least that others believe that there's a them. It's not it, it's not an unwillingness to even engage in the conversation of of there being other deities, or at least other people that other things that people consider to be deities. Yeah. Good. Rick? Oh, by the way, um, I had one question, Joanna. Who's Rabbi Knopp? Oh, is that what it says on my account? No, behind you on the board, it says Uh, characterization of Rabbi Knopp. That's hilarious. I happen to be working in a school at the moment, and Rabbi Knapp is the head of the school. I, and I, I just slipped into an empty room and didn't even realize what was I'm going on. I'm glad people think of these smart and friendly and responsible. That's a very good thing to have anyone's rabbi. <laughs> uh, okay, Rick. Um, hi. I just wanted to throw in 
I think the last thing that Pharaoh says is when they're leaving is Uverachtem Gamoti and, and okay, so go ahead and, and do all your worshiping and, and throw in a blessing for me too. Uh, 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 worship me there too. So, um, he, he, uh, he says that at the end, I, I do believe. He's, uh, which Pharaoh, but right, the right before the Exodus, uh-huh. the last time he sees uh, Moses, Uverachtem Gamoti, I think. Okay. And, and what's your there for? That, um, um, Pharaoh at that point recognizes that, um, um, people can worship other gods and, and go ahead, oh, got uh, it. worship me over there, uh, and then come back if, if, if that's still part of the thing. But, um, uh-huh. he, he's, he's finally recognizing that, um, there's something going on. Got it. An acknowledgement, not just that I've been defeated, but that there, there is a, there is a God out there. Uh, and so if you're going to be there already, ask, you know, ask for a blessing on my behalf. Yeah. Great. Um, okay, let's go back to Alan uh, for the next verse, because Rashi has nothing to say on this verse. And uh, and they said that Elohei uh, Avrim, uh, the 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 gods of the Hebrew, have called upon us to go to go on, on our way for three days in the desert, and we will sacrifice before, before God. Lest that we should be pega, uh, smitten or smote. Yep. Um, in the, uh, Dever is, uh, what's, Dever pestilence? What's, yep. what's yep. pestilence? Or by the sword. Good. And just to make the beginning part of the verse a little more, uh, understandable, honor the etnachta under Alenu, right? Because mm. there's a, so, so separate the phrases, right? So, Vayomru Elohevri, Elohevri Nikra Alenu. They said, the God of the Hebrews has, we'll, we'll linger on this in a second, but has been kind of called upon us, invoked upon us. Comma, therefore I'm adding in Nelchana. Let let us go, we're, or, or we're going to go. I pray a, a trip of three days into the desert, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not that that God, the Hebrews, has been called on us that such that we should go, but that et nachta divides those phrases. Okay, ah, okay. But keep your finger there, everybody, and then go back to another verse we already looked at today. Go back to three eighteen. So 318 is one of the places in the burning bush where this very scene is anticipated. And again, we'll read it again. The Israelites will hear you. You and the elders, who are not there this time, to the king of Egypt, and you're going to say to him, The God, Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, has been karad aleinu. However, the kara in verse 318 is from the root kuf resh he, to happen, ah. to, to be an incident, to simply occur. And the kara of our verse is kuf resh aleph, which is to call, to call out. Now, of the, of the ways a word in a verbally transmitted tradition can change, this is an obvious one, right? Because, you know, I heard nikra, 
but this guy in this cave wrote down Nikra He, and this guy in that cave wrote down Nikra Aleph, even though it seems to be that it's, it, it, should, it should probably be um, the same thing in both verses, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, of course, that makes it fodder for Midrash. Why is it Nikra happenstance in verse 318, but it's Nikra to be called out in, uh, in verse 5-3? And I was going to compare the two different ways that Everfox translates it, because he wants to be very um, specific to the words. So in our verse, where we have an Aleph, Everett Fox says, they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Really interesting choice. Nikra Alenu has met with us. And in 3.18, the Nikra with a hey, Everett Fox renders as, um, they will hearken to your voice and you will come, you and the elder of Israel to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. He translates it the same way. So either Everett Fox is simply saying these two words mean the same thing, or he's saying, I'm, I, Everett Fox, am making a determination that there was a, uh, an, a canonized error, and it actually was originally the same word, it got shifted, but I'm going to translate it as if it's the exact same word. Um, doesn't offer comments on that, just translates it that way. So I thought that was interesting to point out. Um, I'm curious... Um, uh, Larry, does Arya Kaplan do anything interesting with the two Nikras if you compare the translation of those verses? Okay. Um, it's 3.18 and 5.3. Yeah, 5.3. I had to go back to 3.18. Hold on. Um, it's 1.3. There we go. So on 3.18, um, they will take what you say very seriously you and the elders of Israel will then go to the king of Egypt. You must tell him, Yudhei Vavhei, God of the Hebrews, revealed himself to us. Now we request that you allow us to take a three-day journey into the desert to sacrifice to Yudhei Vavhei, our God. So so the Nikra with the hay is being rendered by Arya Kappen has revealed himself, okay, and ours? And then in our verse that we're on, turn the page. The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us, same thing. So he, he, he does something similar to Ever Fox in that he, he, he uses different English words, but the same English words. Unculus, a translator, does, takes a different route, right? So on our verse, 5-3, where you have the more intentional Aleph, the calling out, Unculus says, the Amaru, they should say, Elaha de Yehudae, it's interesting they use the word Yehudae here, because that's an anachronism, right? The God of the Jews, Yehuda. Yehudim. Itgale Alana was revealed upon us. So that makes sense. A kara by Yikrad and Nile Moshe is definitely a revelation, right? Um, and in 318, if you go back, Unculus on the Nikra with the hay, which does not mean to call out, says, Batemrun um, Le Adonai, Elahad de Yehudei, the God of the Jews, Itgare Alana happened upon us. He, he maintains the root kufresh hay in the Aramaic, just like we had a chance encounter with. So it's really interesting when you're a translator, uh, but you're also a student of text to try to figure out what do I do with these two homophones that have similar meaning, but not identical meaning, right? Um, and uh, how do I render it into a fixed text in another language that will be read by the people who only read that language to render the verse in the most precise way possible. 
Does it change that much? No, right? It doesn't really actually change the story, but it's an interesting exercise to think about that choice of translations. Okay. I just give you one more translation because I remember we talked about this um, when we were doing chapter three. Yeah. Alter uses the words happened upon us. And in his commentary on, on that. For which verse, one? For chapter three, he says happened upon us? Yeah. Well, he uses happened upon us both times, but the commentary only appears in chapter three, where he says they use a verb that elsewhere suggests chance encounter rather than the more definite appeared, or I would add revealed, this might imply that they want to intimate to Pharaoh that they did not seek this meeting with the divinity. Mm. He doesn't repeat that in in chapter 5. He has no comment about that in chapter 5. But it's kind of interesting because it almost be that they say, look, we didn't want this to happen, but it happened. What can we do about it? Now we got to go serve this God who happened to reveal himself to me. Otherwise, we knew nothing about him. Well, if you go meta on that comment, then you would say that, that he would be reading it as saying that the instructions were to say, Nikra, Aleph, hey, it just happened. Don't blame us. But what actually happened is Nikra, Aleph. They, 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 uh, they, 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 that the, in the, re, in real time, the they, it, Moses and Aaron changed it from an hey to an Aleph, which makes it a more intentional call. And actually, had you had a chance to talk to, to, to alter, he might have changed the translation in verse three to revealed himself yeah. as opposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Tova, anything else on, on the verse before we look at the Rashi, which we may or may not get to today? Uh, right. Um, well, two things. One, I just find the contrast between it and the and the first statement that he makes uh, very interesting because, as we commented, there's none of the um, politeness of addressing a ruler. It's very blunt. Uh, whereas here you have the use of na, the kind of softening a tone, and then they add at the end, which is nowhere in Moses's interaction with God that if you don't let us go, we could be punished by pestilence in the sword, which sounds like the kind of slight desperateness of look at following Larry's comment. Look, we didn't look for this, but he came and revealed himself to us. And, and you've got to let us go. And they kind of invent this, this, di- this dire consequences that might come on them and, and maybe seemingly then deprive Pharaoh of his slaves. Very good. So Baruch Shekivan, that's the, you've picked up on the thing that Rashi is going to be curious about, which is why is the, is the stick being applied to Pharaoh here? Not potential damage to Pharaoh or direct damage, but to us, right? right? right. We need to do this, not lest your first son be killed, not lest you be smitten, but lest, um, if we want to read it very, the translator very, uh, very precisely, that he's, we will offer um, uh, sacrifices to Adonai our God, pain yifka enu, lest he, it's got to be, you have to read it masculine, it sounds weird in English, lest he smite us, badever, with pestilence, obacharev, not lest he come after you. Right. So, um, we'll hear Rashi's resolution to that probably next week, but very good that you picked up on that. That's a curiosity in this verse. Uh, Alan and then Leonard Rebecca. That was just the point I was going to raise. Why is it that they're going after the Jews, that they're, that they're saying that it's going to hurt us? So you covered it beautifully. Good. We'll see. And, and Rashi will, will do an even better job next time. Lena Rebecca, probably last comment to the class. 
Okay, so uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned over here is that it seems that uh, we have a falsehood over here that uh, Moses says, hey, we're going to go out for three days. And not only that, he's doing that based on God's instructions, because they have no intention of returning after three days. Right. It seems kind of, uh, I don't know, what's the word here? but Deceptive. uh, Deceptive, that, you know, there's there's something wrong over here. It's like, why why doesn't he just say, let us go and we'll leave? Right. So it goes back to, uh, I think, Elon's first comment of the day here, which is how we're supposed to understand the rationale behind why the why the pretense of davening in the desert is part of the initial request and is it um a fallacy is it a tactic right uh is it speaking pharaoh's language um do we do we mind that a falsehood was present in the attempt to try to uh, free the israelites right if we can get out of here with a a white lie might that be better than getting out of here by smiting all of their, you know, their, their rivers and their cattle. But yes, we, the reader are not supposed to think that the request is for them to go Davin and then come back. But we, the reader might be supposed to think that Pharaoh is supposed to think in the moment that, ah, all they're asking for is a little sabbatical. I can do, I can deal with that. Now the answer is still no, but um, it's a soft peddling of, we're taking away your free servants forever. Um, I'll just add one uh, other sentence before we close that, you know, still in the relatively immediate aftermath of our experience in the South where, you know, we, we, we did lots of different things, including visiting interesting Jewish communities in the South and, um, and get a sense of the, of the Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. And also by the way, the Jewish involvement in the slavery movement. Um, it's really, proximate to be using words about freeing slaves and beneficent masters and what's the tactic to get them out when one's mind is still uh, on a plantation in Louisiana trying to imagine what an actual 20 you know 19th century slaves experience really was like um, so I'm already aware that my observance of Pesach this year and of reading these verses is going to have a different different volume um, because it was a really evocative trip. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.